need regulation of the internet, which radically changes the way we understand how the information environment is shaped. So if something is a campaign, you have to be able to understand whether it's a campaign. And if it's pretending to be genuine when it's actually a campaign, then I think there should be regulation that it gets taken down. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Well, it looks as though we are now barreling towards impeachment proceedings. And to be honest, I am very torn about them. On the one side, it is quite clear to me that Donald Trump deserves to be impeached at this point. There are many reasons for that, uh, but to focus on that phone call with Ukraine, I think that asking a foreign power to investigate your domestic political opponent comes close to the definition of abuse of power for personal or political gain. It's hard to think of what kind of circumstance the founders might have had in mind when they talked about high crimes and misdemeanors if it wasn't that kind of abuse of high office. At the same time, I worry that many of my friends and colleagues are far too optimistic, far too sanguine about how impeachment is going to play out. In the case of Richard Nixon, we were dealing with a hypocrite who looked to the country like he cared about good manners, about the norms of the institutions of this country, as though he would never privately rave and rant. So when the White House tapes were released, they were a big shock and moved public opinion. It is hard for me to imagine what we might find out about Donald Trump in the next few months that is going to come as a surprise to anybody because all of his villainy, all of his misdeeds are pretty open. So most likely he will be acquitted on a party line vote in the Senate and go into the 2020 elections being able to claim unfairly that he was exonerated. I'm not quite sure how that will play out politically. More broadly, I think that we need to remember the only way to beat populists in a serious way is to beat them at the ballot box. Yes, it is in some ways heartening that Matteo Salvini in Italy is not now in office because the opposition Democratic Party has managed to broker a temporary coalition with a five-star movement. Yes, it is in some ways heartening that Parliament is asserting itself against Boris Johnson's little off-brand wannabe semi-coup. But once again, it actually takes a swing in public opinion to ensure that damage does not come to the country. So obviously at this point, I have to hope that we find smoking guns in the impeachment proceedings, that they will be enough for a lot of Senate Republicans to go with their conscience rather than their political interest, that uh, impeachment will somehow get a lot of a country to reject Donald Trump for the right reasons. But unfortunately, I am far from certain that this will be the case. And by the way, I worry about what might happen if Trump gets re-elected in 2020, abuses his power in an even more blatant way in his second term in office, and the remedy of impeachment has then effectively been taken off the table. So, interesting times, 
hopeful times in certain respects, but also quite scary times. This week on the podcast, I have Peter Pomeranzev. Peter is a fellow at the London School of Economics, and he has written a new book, which is called This is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. Especially in the field of social media, when it comes to thinking about how countries like Russia are trying to shape the international system, there's a lot of sloppy thinking, and Peter is not a sloppy thinker. We had a very excited conversation in which we've jumped around a whole bunch, but it's really clarified some of my thinking about social media, and I hope it will do the same for you as well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Peter. I'm doing it full of fear and trembling, but I'm very excited. Listen, so, you know, everybody is talking all of the time about propaganda and Twitter and Facebook and the way in which Russia tries to influence our public discourse and our politics. I also feel like it's a field in which there's an incredible amount of sloppy thinking and an incredible amount of speculation based on very little reporting of a real world. Now, you've thought very hard about this topic and you've actually done a lot of reporting. What are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about this field? What are some of the things that you see all of the time in the New York Times or on Twitter and think, no, no that just gets it completely wrong? <laughs> yeah, so that's so nasty of you. You're trying to get me to say unkind things about my colleagues straight away. You, you don't have to mention people by name. <laughs> I just want to understand where we are wrong in our understanding of the world. <laughs> Look, I actually think there are very different dynamics in different countries. Just looking at the Russia thing. So in countries or in segments of countries where, you know, there's a bit of a tradition of being Russia skeptic, there's a really strong reaction around. We're going to use the word interference, but I already hate that word interference. So let's say in bits of the kind of the liberal American discourse, there's a lot about this. And then in Germany, where we actually have hard evidence, you know, much harder than the US of actual collusion between the Kremlin and German members of the Bundestag. There's a great story about how the Kremlin helped a parliamentarian from the AFD party. And there's like, we, we have the emails where they're saying, we will give you, or well, he's asking them for media and financial support for, hmm. his, for his election. And the reaction in Germany is virtually zero. So there's this incredible disbalance in some countries where there's hard evidence People don't seem to care because, to put it very simply, I would think there's overall a tradition of liking Russia. While in America, where it's harder to nail the collusion part, the reaction is much more vociferous simply because people are so weirded out by the Trump presidency, which is a real shock, I think, and a quite understandable shock to many people. There's the point of interpretation which colors things. But that's kind of to be expected. And, and I don't think there's anything particularly weird about that. You know, we're always part of greater cultural dynamics when we analyze things. I think one thing that I really don't like, and I don't like because I actually I think it's playing into the Kremlin's hands and it's framing the conversation in a very dangerous way, is when we talk about the Russian operations in the US in terms of meddling and interference. These are completely subjective terms. They mean nothing at all. If we at the end of the day, and I certainly do, still believe in the ideals of 1989 and the idea that information flowing across borders is something that we want to aspire to, we can't just use terms like interference and meddling because then there is no difference between the BBC World Service and a Russian troll farm. We have to use the language of transparency. 
the Russian operation wasn't transparent. That's the problem with it. Not the idea that information is coming across borders. It's the fact that it was deceptive. Let me jump in there because I'm confused about that, right? I mean, it, it seems to me that there is a very clear difference between the BBC World Service and RT. But you are right that it is harder to delineate and formulate that distinction than it might appear. And there's the temptation of us saying, well, the difference is we have the good guys and they're the bad guys. But understandably, that's not how the Russians see it. And that's a little bit too simple. Now, I agree with you that transparency is one of the differences there. That is absolutely clear that the BBC World Service is a government-funded entity. People can understand how it is governed and who makes decisions about it in which way. And that is less true of something like Sputnik, for example. But it seems to me that it goes beyond that, that there is a set of journalistic standards that something like the BBC aspires to stick to, even if they don't always succeed, that they are willing to criticize their own governments in ways that is not true of RT. And that seems to me simultaneously softer. You know, it's harder to make that distinction in an objective way that everybody will agree on. And more important, that's really the heart of the matter. I mean, if Russia says, yes, we fund RT and we fund Sputnik and we're going to be open about it, it's not clear to me how much that would actually allay my concerns. Okay, so two things. I think that this happens quite often. So we're modeling the different things. But it's good. We're already moving beyond this cover it all and very loose and I think damaging word interference. So I was actually talking not about RT and Sputnik, I was talking about the very clearly covert social media operations that have been kind of slowly revealed over the past two years. So the problem there isn't the fact that the Russians had sort of like social media presence in America, it's the fact that they were doing it in a really, really deceptive way. The second one is RT and Sputnik, where I do believe the only difference one would be able to make is around quality. But nobody's saying that RT and Sputnik don't have a right to exist. That's a very different thing. So the argument to make there is about quality. Now, in Europe, we can make that argument because we have regulation around the quality, uh, around the accuracy and balance and fairness of, of broadcast media. In America, you don't have that. So you can't really make that argument in America. It doesn't work as an argument. So there seems to be another distinction here between broadcast media and social media, right? One thing is RT and Sputnik as attempts by the Russian state to shape the narrative. And we might still think that there's something about the content of what they do, the kinds of journalistic standards they do or don't follow that we should be concerned about. But that's a relatively overt and uncertain with traditional propaganda operation or media operation, right? The other thing on the other side is social media. And I feel like that's something where we just don't really have developed norms. Obviously, the fact that a lot of this involves fake profiles which pretend to be American or pretend to be German when they're actually controlled in a direct or indirect way by a foreign government is one thing to be concerned about. But it seems to me that, again, it's also something about the content of what people do there. What kind of norms should govern this field? That is a fantastic question. And one positive side effect of the Russian activity is it's really stimulated a discussion around this. We're going to have slightly differing responses in different countries in Europe and in America due to the very different traditions around the First Amendment and freedom of expression that exist in different European countries. For example, in Germany, there's a much, much more militant tradition 
of safeguarding democracy through censorship of extremist content, which is historically contingent. Britain is somewhere in the middle, and then America obviously is closer to free speech absolutism. What worries me is that we're going to get radically different responses in different Western democracies. So the Germans are going to go down the route and have gone down the route of censoring content. The British are kind of taking a medium route. They're saying we're not going to censor every piece of content because that is impossible on the internet and probably stupid. So they're approaching this idea of harms. First, they're going to see, okay, is there a harm to this body of content? And if they think there's a harm, let's say anti-vax content or Russia trying to covertly influence an election, then the social media companies will be expected to act. And if they don't, they will be very severely punished. And then there's the American way, which is just so far... You know, the only thing that I've seen in America that might move towards this is a California law around bots having sort of to declare that they are bots. Yeah. So basically a kind of honesty around and integrity around behavior online. So what I really want to see happen, and I'm, I'm part of a transatlantic working group led by USC Penn on the subject, is how can we find a common and by which I mean kind of Western democracies' response to this problem. Where is that point of commonality between the British approach, the German approach, and the American approach? And I think that will be around sort of transparency, around behavior online. I think that's the one point we can come together. First Amendment, people don't have too much of a problem with it because we're asking for more information, not less. And that would put the Western democratic internet in robust contrast to authoritarian ones where online activity will continue to be very non-transparent. But I think it needs to go further. I think there needs to be public oversight of algorithms. I think there has to be accountability on the side of the social media companies kind of show quarterly reports about what they're doing exactly to sort of mitigate what they call coordinated and authentic behavior. But I think, look, we live in a world where we don't understand how the information environment around us is shaped. And that's kind of a censorship of sorts, you know. So I would really like that to change. And I think that's something that Western countries, very different ones, can agree on. So there's a few different ideas in here. And let's take them one by one. The first is this idea of transparency. Now, transparency is always a positive thing. It's always hard to argue against transparency. And indeed, I think in most areas of life, we really should want a transparency, including these ones. I just wonder how much of a difference that makes. It seems to me that most people who come across content from RT are aware that it is state-sponsored in some kind of way, for example. Um, that may be a little less true on social media. But we also have evidence from past transparency initiatives that they don't really help. So there was a big wave of sunshine laws in the 90s and 2000 in order to make sure that we understand better how lobbyists are trying to influence the workings of the American government. Um, when you visit the White House now, you have to write your name down in a sort of log. Uh, lobbyists have to disclose a lot of the context they have with elected officials. It doesn't really seem that that has substantively reduced the kind of ways in which lobbyists can influence the government, in part because it's only the kinds of people who have extreme leisure at the hand and extreme resources at the hand who can actually follow those things up in great detail. So why is it that we should think that knowing more about who spends money on what and what the real source of certain things is would actually reshape the online world in substantive ways? Well, firstly, if these laws around transparency aren't followed, then that's the reason to take different sorts of materials down. So firstly, it just wouldn't be there. You're quite right, though. I mean, the Russians go 
don't necessarily have to pretend to be a user in Tennessee supporting Trump. They can just say, hi, I'm from St. Petersburg and I support Trump. But I, I think that would at least give us the ground on which to compete. Yeah, If we make the internet interpretable, then we can start competing in this space and we can see what the other side are doing and we can start adopting counter-narratives or thinking how we reach these audiences which are currently vulnerable to this kind of messaging. At the end of the day, I mean, Yasha, how much regulation do we really want around political speech? It should be messy. It should be cacophonous. Democracies are inherently dangerous because they're open and that's why they're exciting and occasionally productive. I think that's fine. I think but we just have to have a ground that we can compete on because at the moment it's deeply rigged towards anyone who wants to do any kind of covert kind of manipulative type of campaign. It has to at least be interpretable. Yeah, I suppose I have both fears at the same time. I both fear the negative influence that social media can have and think that a lot of the suggestions that people currently make for how to deal with it are frankly just going to make a tiny difference. And at the same time, I'm quite concerned about the prospect of quite deep censorship, which, by the way, has been a way of destabilizing politics further. So when you're seeing uh, even the accounts that are being blocked by Twitter and Facebook right now, and these are private companies, I do think they have some right to block noxious content, they make mistakes and end up blocking some people who really don't deserve to be blocked. And that is then exploited as a propaganda victory by people who are saying, look at the reasonable speech that is completely being shut off. Twitter and Facebook and the whole infrastructure of American democracy is biased against people like us. And that's another reason why we should be angry and why we should blow everything up. So I sort of have both fears at the same time. I both fear that we're not actually going to be able to make much of a difference and that our attempts to make a difference are going to end up creating forms of censorship that are worth worrying about in themselves and a political backlash, which is dangerous to our ability to have decency and good governance. So that's why I'm sort of deeply puzzled by this whole field. But that's happening because there is no clear regulation, so they just do what they want. I mean, I think you've got to the crux of the matter, though, because it's a black hole, because essentially, you know, we're like Calibans on Prospero's Island in the Tempest who have this information environment shaped by social media companies and various kind of covert actors without really any kind of understanding what's going on. Whether, look, the Russian operation's tiny compared to the amount of malign. Malign, by that mean, I mean sort of a untransparent activity on social media. And that includes the way that companies take stuff down. That has to be more transparent as well. That there's actually even a few people who are suggesting we should have online courts. So the only way to do this in a transparent way is literally to have a whole judicial sector making very quick decisions of judges who are specialist online judges uh, and an online process of appeals to judge whether something should have been taken down in line with a the laws of the land human rights and sort of freedom of expression but also the terms of service of the companies you are right the companies can say look we do not allow certain ty types of content but that has to be completely clear and then their rationale hmm. for taking things down has to be clear so so that's by the way that's that's one of the pieces of transparency that's currently lacking completely Completely, yes, no, it has to be both. Accounts on Twitter get blocked or not blocked, suspended or not suspended, and there's no real understanding as to why this is happening. And so that creates a de facto regime of haphazard censorship, which understandably has people angry and confused. And think about what we're going to. We're going towards 2020. I really thought that over the last few years people would have grasped this, but we are still in a situation where, A, any type of actor, whether it's the Russians or groups associated with either political party, can 
organize covert campaigns on social media, on the internet generally. And, and we're already seeing, especially the Trump side, already kind of readying the ground saying, no, 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 these companies are actually biased against uh, conservative voices, that they censor us and they rig the algorithms. And, you know, because it's a black box, because we don't know how Google organizes algorithms, because we don't know why Twitter takes people down, because of all that, it's very hard to find a counter argument. And the overall thing is a loss of trust and a loss of the sense that, you know, democracy is a level playing field. And that's really the bigger problem here. I mean, it's not Russia has raised this problem, but this is a really, really big problem. And I just wonder when legislators will, will kind of start to grapple with it. This is a great conversation about some of the potential solutions to the problems we have on social media. But in a way, this conversation is entirely backward and that's entirely my fault, which is to say that I'm not sure that we've yet <laughs> dug deeply enough into what impact it's actually having. And this is, again, something on which I feel very torn. When I was first writing my book about the rise of populism, I think the chapter on social media is the one that I wrote last. And always with a little bit of a concern that I was overemphasizing it. And since then, I have to say that the extent to which all of political discourse is now driven by social media, the ways in which relatively small numbers of people can completely dominate how we frame issues and what it is we're talking about, has made me more tempted by the other position. But both of those, at some level, are hunches. There's great resources trying to understand the impact of social media, but because it is so systemic, and it came online in so many different countries at the same time, it's really difficult to make heads or tails of it. So, you know, in your mind, having done all of this research, how would our politics be different today if social media had not been invented around 10 years ago? If we hadn't had Facebook, if we didn't have Twitter, if all we had was relatively costless one-on-one communication. So you can send somebody a message on WhatsApp, you can send somebody a text message very cheaply, but you can't say... Barack Obama is an illegitimate president, and I think that his uh, birth certificate is fake, and have you know thousands of people like that, and other people see that thousands of people like that, and all those kinds of specific dynamics, which in my mind at least are part of what's different and special about social media. Yeah, so that is such a great question. And there is a whole discipline of media effects, which tries to measure the effects of, of various types of media. And it's a noble endeavor But I wonder whether it's worth taking a step back. I mean, like the impact of print on the formation of nations, you know, as for Benedict Anderson, is that such a deep and systemic kind of change? The the idea you could have sort of like, you know, uh, newspapers printed in the vernacular for a language-based market help kind of cement the idea of nations. I think with social media, it's a bit of a chicken-egg question because a lot of the pathologies of 21st century propaganda and the rhetoric that politicians choose to use, I already saw already happening in Russia in the 1990s, which was a pre-internet era. Yeah? So a lot of these, what we refer to as post-truth, what we refer to as populism to a certain extent, I already saw forming in the 1990s and early 2000s in Russia due to a set of fascinating historical moments. And that was before kind of social media burst on the mm. scene. I think simply to say, oh, social media has caused people not caring about the facts anymore. Certainly my research doesn't point to that. That discourse was already present due to other factors. And this, by the way, suggests a very interesting idea, which is that a lot of the things that we're ascribing to social media right now 
may not come from social media. It takes place in social media because that's the best technology we have at the moment. But counterfactually, if social media didn't exist, there would be other vectors through which to spread post-truth discourse. And at the same time, it may be true that social media is starting to completely reshape our political world in ways that we haven't even uh, begun to understand yet. So social media may both uh, not be responsible for some of the most important phenomena we're seeing at the moment and simultaneously be reshaping our politics in an even deeper way than we've recognized. And I'm not quite sure what either of those things means, but that's an interesting kind of idea that comes to my mind based on what you were saying. But I sort of interrupted you. Go on. So I think about this a lot, and maybe my next book will be about that relationship, just historically and now especially because we're living through it, the relationship between culture and ideology on the one hand and media, because I think we'd probably find it's like a conversation and they change and, and reinforce each other. And things were, that were just like little, you know, starting points culturally are suddenly catalyzed and empowered by the form of media. There could be other interesting relationships too. So what's so interesting about social media is that the way Mark Zuckerberg and all his other geeky friends decided to design it. It was essentially the way a reality producer designs a reality show. You know, it's all about narcissism, getting attention, likes, shares. I mean, social media is just one vast reality show. And it's all about, the reality show was the last phase of kind of TV that blossomed before social media came on the scene. And it's almost as if social media is the kind of the fruition into life of what was already there in, in the reality show, which already gave the chance for anyone to be a narcissistic, conflict-driven arsehole. And, um, <laughs> but I actually wonder whether, whether the relationship is something quite simple, that as people like Zuckerberg were designing the social media, they grew up in a culture of reality shows, and it kind of influenced them. Either that or both reality shows and the designers of social media kind of got to the crux of the, you know, the most vain and addictive part of human behavior, which is attention seeking. But there's a dynamic there that, that's not necessarily contrasting, but empowering. It's the same with this phenomenon of echo chambers and fragmentation. I know these are poor metaphors because an echo chamber isn't really what we have online, but let's use that as a metaphor, as a faulty metaphor. That, and many researchers have shown that at MIT and Kathleen Hall-Jameson, look, that really starts with cable news in America and the appearance of sort of talk radio. Radio, which already splinters and fragments the audience. And then social media that then goes and just takes that to a level that's, you know, undreamt of. So even fragmentation and polarization, which are the main factors of our politics today and seem very universal everywhere where social media is dominant, that was already getting going under TV and radio. Social media has just taken that much, much further. Think of when reality television came online, which is a very different kind of thing. People were obsessed with Big Brother. They were obsessed with shows like that. And eventually, the novelty of it wore off. And while it retained some kind of niche, I think that Big Brother, at least in some European countries, it's now in its you know 27th season or whatever it is. It's no longer a big part of a conversation. It has its fans, but it's a relatively small segment of a market. And I wonder whether there's a similar element of social media where it still has a novelty. It rewards all of the worst behaviors, but some of the antibodies haven't yet kicked in. People haven't yet started to tune out from Twitter because it's just too toxic. They haven't yet started to develop the cultural language for people who spread lies or even who just sort of try to radicalize, try to denounce people, try to pile on people that might keep that behavior in check. And you might be starting to see the emergence of that. And this is not just a matter of sort of propaganda from foreign forces or trolls. It's also a matter of a kind of behavior 
that it encourages in uh, journalists, in academics, in politicians. But I wonder whether a moment will come when people say, well, you know, that person is just a creator of drama on social media, and that's the worst kind of person there is, you know. And as you start to have these social tropes, as people start to get bored of it, the social penalty for it, both online and offline, might start to grow in ways that rebalance the system a little bit. I hope so. And generally, whenever a new media appears on the scene, whether it's radio or, or the early printing press, it's the forces of, I think the technical political science word is stirring shit, that kind of get ahead <laughs> of the system first. And it takes a while for like the BBC and public service type people going, okay, how do we use this technology for something else, which I think is the, is the next phase. And people to get a little bit more immune to it. And here it does get troubling. It is baked into the logic of how the internet has been put together so far. The way it's been designed rewards polarizing behavior, it rewards self-scandalizing behavior, it rewards extreme emotions. That's what you get likes and shares for. That is what the ad tech system is based on. At the LSE, we did a, a lovely project with Corriere della Sera, the Italian newspaper of record, and they depend on ad tech to survive. Yeah, they're not subscription model. They de depend on their articles going viral. Mm. And when kind of the reasonable politicians in Italy speak, the articles then go very viral. When politicians like Salvini, who was until recently sort of Minister for Interior and very Trumpian-like figure. And remains, by the way, the most popular politician in Italy. So even though there's a new coalition, I spoke about Italy briefly in the last podcast, so let me briefly fill people in what's going on. Basically, the Five Star Movement, which is a populist movement that comes from the left and is now ideologically in Kuwait and the traditional center-left party, the Partito Democratico, have managed to cobble together a governing coalition in order to avoid new elections that would have resulted in Salvini sweeping into power. But there's a real question as to how long they are able to sustain this mm. coalition, especially since they have a very slim minority. And it will probably make Salvini even more popular because he can now say, look, all of the other political forces are in cahoots against me. They stopped me from being prime minister when I was the most popular politician in the country. He can blame everything that's going wrong in Italy on the new government. And so he is, for now, neutralized in opposition. But I fear that that is a temporary reprieve. Sorry, Peter, resume. And he is a master, a bit like Trump, at dominating the internet news agenda, both the sort of alternative press, who kind of he has his own sort of army of alternative press that push, push his ideas and push his agenda, but also the traditional ones, who are getting a lot like Trump. He creates situations which are scandalous. He says purposefully scandalous things. One has to write about it and one has to comment on it. And he says, oh, look, the mainstream media is attacking me. But the problem for the mainstream media is that because he's so polarizing, it gets lots and lots of clicks. Let's take a step back, because I think one of the interesting things in this debate is that we always talk about what's changed with the rise of social media, what's changed with attempts by some foreign agents to influence our politics. But I wonder to what extent all of this is actually to do with structural transformations that have simply happened within our democracies. I mean, to what extent is this just about changes in trust in elites, changes in how we communicate with each other, the fading of the legacy of World War II, uh, the fading of the threat uh, from an alternative political system that we saw in the Cold War. You know, to what extent is this actually the rise of new technology in the way we're being exploited by certain bad actors? And to what extent, on the other hand, is it simply that this technology has a very different impact in an environment in which core democratic norms and support for our political system has eroded? 
That's a fascinating question. And I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. I think it would be fascinating to look at the relationship between kind of the emergence of new media and new forms of politics. I mean, historically, there's some great writing by people like Benedict Anderson about how the emergence of print helped develop the possibility of the nation state, you know, until you had the possibility of printing newspapers and printing books and a vernacular that was for a common, often single linguistic market, it was difficult to kind of sort of conceive of a coherent nation. So, so I think there's a very deep connection between the emergence of technology and different political forms. But certainly, like, let's take one thing, what is often referred to as post-truth, which I would take as the idea that politicians aren't just lying, they've always lied. That's probably a key kind of, you know, qualification for being a politician. But they celebrate the fact that they don't care if they're caught lying. Yeah, that's slightly a new thing. It's not like the Orwellian thing of persuading people that two plus two equals five. It's saying two plus two, uh, who cares? Numbers don't matter. And I saw that already emerging in Russia in the early 1990s with politicians like Vladimir Zhirinovsky, who completely anticipate Trump and Duterte and, and, and these kind of politicians three decades earlier. And there you still had kind of TV as the main technology. And I don't think you can really blame that on the technology. That was really a moment that was historically determined, I suppose, is, determined is the right word. And it was to do with the fact that while you still had the Cold War, you had the competition of different Enlightenment projects, both whether communism or democratic capitalism, trying to establish with facts and with evidence that they were creating a better rational future. And in Russia, in 89, obviously communism collapses. By 93, any kind of vestiges of faith in democratic capitalism as a rational, progressive future collapse as well with a disastrous period for Russia and huge amounts of misery. And you see the emergence of politicians who celebrate the idea that there is kind of no future anymore. There's no future that you need to establish with facts. And therefore, like, you can sort of start throwing facts out the window and nostalgia and this kind of epitage and performance become the values. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a historical moment. So we've kind of reached that now in the West with kind of like, you know, the decay for many people of a belief in kind of a rationally ordered arc of history, as President Obama liked to refer to it. So I think those are much bigger processes than technology. However, technology has also had a massive impact. So we've already talked a little bit about solutions, but are we looking in the wrong place when we're thinking about Twitter and Facebook and the digital publishing economy? Is that the wrong place to look? Do we actually need to think about how to change civic education, how to change the way in which we defend and proselytize of the values of liberal democracy. And how realistic is that? Because that's something that I've proposed in my book that I think is very important. I know of some very interesting proposals to do that. But it's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem in a society in which people don't give the same importance, don't give the same value to some of that institutional and normative consensus we used to have. How are we going to get a sufficiently broad-based initiative of uh, recommitment to our civic faith going that it can actually compete with the vegetarian consequences of the changes you're describing. Yeah, sure. Let me look at just one aspect of that massive problem you're talking about, because um, my book really deals with, with propaganda and media and the formation of public opinion and how that needs to be updated, I think, for democracy to survive. So we have to have a space where 
democracy is enacted. Uh, you call it the public sphere, you know, you can call it many different words, but essentially it's the idea that we can all interact with each other as equals in some way and we can have genuine communication and genuine deliberation and genuine debate and reach consensus and difference and so on and so forth. I mean, that's the kind of the process of democracy. That's not a new idea that you know, goes back to the ancient Greeks. And that's broken down partly because of technology and really kind of the axioms that we had that supported and we thought guaranteed a democratic public space have fallen down. And the metaphors we had, the metaphor of the marketplace of ideas, that the, you know, what, what you need is lots and lots of information. The best information will ultimately win out because it's somehow better. Or the idea that pluralism of media automatically leads to a more robust debate. Even to a certain extent, the idea of kind of like freedom of expression is an absolute virtue and certainly the kind of the values implicit in a lot of journalism and public service journalism about fairness impartiality objectivity all of these have taken a huge battering both because of technology and because of historical changes that we've discussed so we really have to think about how do we create an updated and a new public sphere that still is full of the same democratic values but one that kind of reflects the much more chaotic reality that we're now in yeah, that's right. I mean, to acknowledge this is one part of it, some of the ways in which institutions have gone wrong in which they haven't lived up to the legitimate expectations of people, some of the ways in which elites have not failed up to the responsibilities and the advantages that they enjoy in the society. But at the same time, also an understanding that there are parts of a political system that are very, very well worth defending, that we probably need a kind of elite that makes certain decisions, that can provide expertise, that has forms of uh, genuine responsibility attached to it. And combining these two things is the trick. Now, some of that process of regeneration may be spontaneous. I mean, I do think that there's these different historical moments and there are often not just centrifugal forces, but also ones pulling societies back together. But we haven't quite gotten there yet. I'm worried that we're slightly giving the impression that you're only thinking about the United States and Britain and the ways in which Russia influences them or what's going on in Russia. I mean, you look at countries around the world. How do some of the things that we've been talking about play out concretely on the ground, say in a place like the Philippines, where Rodrigo Duterte has become the strongman leader a few years ago? So I find the Philippines absolutely fascinating. And when we think about the last 40 years of history, I guess it's probably my problem. I grew up in a slightly Eurocentric worldview. And, and really, we forget that actually 1989, you know, this great year that we're celebrating 30 years of, really started not in Prague or East Berlin, but in Manila. People coming out into the streets and demanding democracy against an authoritarian, censorious regime happened first in Melilla and sort of, I think, 1988, you have Marcos being overthrown and really very similar values to 1989. We always forget that 1989 isn't just Europe. It's also Latin America and obviously South Africa and South Asia. And really, you know, in that sense, the Philippines is completely fits into our paradigms. And you have this, you know, eruption of independence and this intoxication from the hopes of freedom. And a huge part of that is freedom of expression and the breakdown of government-controlled media and censorship. And now you have Duterte, 30 years later, who is definitely playing on all the motifs we see everywhere else about inequality and against urban elites and against academic elites. And he's with the people and all this kind of rhetoric that we see everywhere. And he's bringing Marcos back, literally. He's rehabilitated the dictator Marcos. He's reburied him as a hero of the people, like literally taking his body and reburied him. And in a way, he's, he attacks 
opposition and critics in a way that reminds one of Marcos. But his approach is completely different and I think reflects how the approach has changed everywhere. Instead of doing censorship in the sense of constricting the amount of information out there, he has a whole array of cyber militias that work for him and troll farms that flood the zone with disinformation and which do these targeted kind of attacks at opposition and critics. Now, when people say, oh, come on, stop this. This is awful what you're doing with these, with these attacks. You know, the, the response is always, look, this has nothing to do with me. This is freedom of expression. These are concerned citizens out there saying what they, saying what they feel. So the effect is quite similar to Marcos. I mean, people are, critics are attacked, they lose support among the public, and then eventually they get taken to court. You know, once they've kind of been softened up, they'll have a, you know, some sort of like, you know, tax claim made against them, which makes the media unsustainable. But the point is, is how they've kind of, you know, flipped things on their head. And Putin was one of the first to kind of cotton onto this in around 2010, that in today's environment, you flood the zone with too much information. And in a way, you know, you're still working completely with the uh, logic of freedom of expression. And, you know, what can your critics possibly say. And in a context like the Philippines, where the autocratic pressure is much more blunt than it is so far in the United States, in which, you know, excellent, brave uh, publications like the Rappler are facing some of the leading journalists being harassed and even arrested. What hopes is there for a counter-initiative? I mean, it seems to me that one of the structural features of communication technology is that it reduces the distance between gatekeepers and everywhere else. Now, on the one hand, autocratic leaders have much blunter tools in order to counteract that because they can censor, they can threaten, and then they can jail, they can shoot. On the other hand, autocratic regimes have historically tended to be based on a very tight control overflow of information. And that becomes much, much harder when you have digital technology and a relatively modern economy that just relies on a minimum amount of exchange in order to keep the clocks ticking and uh, the trains running and so on. So how is that battle for information, for narrative playing out as the opposition is trying to uh, defend itself against Duterte's incursions? So you're right. They are much more kind of fragile and liquid, these regimes. They're not as kind of like, you know, forever as the Marcos regime or the Soviet regime could feel. It's inherently unstable. And really, the people who win in this environment are the one who are the most liquid, the most supple, the most ready to transform, transform their ideology, transform their tactics. And kind of fleetness of foot and improvisation are what helps these kind of regimes survive. Uh, you're quite right. They're all... All of them, whether it's Turkey or Russia or Duterte, are in a classic dilemma situation where they need all the things that we associate with democratic globalization, open borders, open information, open finance, in order to survive and for their economic model. On the other hand, you know, they still have to sort of develop this kind of like paranoia about the world and this kind of closed mentality. So one of the ways they've kind of adapted, and it's so interesting that this is, you know, we see it happening everywhere again, is instead of having an ideology which is rigid and unsupple and can be undermined and argued against, they use conspiracy as their main kind of psychological narrative. And their aim isn't to kind of create an alternative reality that you believe in, but their aim is to make you not trust anything. 
by kind of conspiracy is is the worldview. There's always a hidden hand somewhere. There's always something you don't understand. Rappler, who just mentioned, are accused in the Philippines of just being an arm of the CIA, obviously. Hong Kong, we see the same thing. The government saying, no, these are just like agents of something or someone you don't even quite understand. Uh, The Russians take this to another level, of course. You know, they will say not just that the opposition are agents of the CIA, they'll actually put out the rumour, actually, they're just agents of the Kremlin. So don't even think about believing in the opposition. They're just our playthings as well. Hmm. And the aim of all this conspiracy is not to buttress an ideology. It is to give people the sense that they live in a world that they can't quite fathom, that they can never really understand, and therefore that they can't change. It's a tactic to undermine a sense of democratic agency. And therefore, you need a strong hand, a Putin, a Duterte, a Trump, to guide you through this. And and it's fascinating how they've all come to this, haven't they? Trump comes to it. I mean, Sean Hannity's shows, and Sean Hannity is, you know, uh, an American TV presenter who who would fit right into Russia. You know, these kind of, he kind of overburdens you with conspiracy after conspiracy after conspiracy. And at the end, he's like, only Trump can kind of bring America from from its knees and make America great again. And they've all come to this. I think the problem that we have at the moment, and, and you and I kind of, uh, I think it's coming through in our conversation, we're really struggling to define what's the difference between authoritarian media and democratic media, because the tactics are so similar now. You're quite right, in authoritarian countries, there's also guns and arrests involved, which we don't have yet in the US. But everything else is incredibly similar. And I think that's what has to change. I think that's where regulation can play a huge role. So we have to be able to formulate what is the difference between a democratic internet, a democratic public sphere, and an autocratic one. Because the autocrats have kind of co-opted the language of freedom of expression and lots and lots of information. You know, you can't say, oh, they censor and we don't. That's not what happens anymore. But I do think there's a, a more subtle form of censorship happening, which is that In this new information environment, we don't understand how it's formed. We don't understand what we see online, why it's there, who put it there, who's behind it, whether something is an an actual person or a bot or a troll, whether it's genuine interaction or a campaign. And we can't see it whether it's Russian or it's done by a political domestic actor. And I think that has to change radically. I think we need regulation of the internet, which radically changes the way we understand how the information environment is shaped. So if something is a campaign, you have to be able to understand whether it's a campaign. And if it's pretending to be genuine when it's actually a campaign, then I think there should be regulation that it gets taken down. I think we have to understand why hmm. algorithms show us one piece of content and not another. I think, I think all these things will be the constituent parts of a democratic internet. And that will make it radically different to Duterte's internet or Putin's internet, because their whole aim is to keep it chaotic and dark and untransparent, because that's what their strategy depends on. And I think that's a really key thing we have to do. It's a piece of kind of regulatory political storytelling that has to happen. And hopefully we'll get there in Europe and the US eventually. And we have to kind of draw a line. We have to say, look, this is a democratic internet. This is how it works. And this is a non-democratic one. Yeah, that seems to me the big project. I mean, how do you formulate the nature of the democratic internet and then broker a consensus around that within societies like the United States, which are obviously already deeply uh, riven, and then across the world's democracies, which have very different leaders from each other, very different outlooks from each other, and, you know, to some genuine extent, very different legal and normative traditions around things like freedom of speech and what it is that the state uh, can and can't do. Uh, Yash, that's my great worry, that because there are different traditions in Germany, 
course, has a much more militant idea of sort of taking down content that's in any way connected to right-wing extremism than in America. And that's my worry, that democracies won't be able to find the point of consensus between each other. Um, I'm working on a, something called the Transatlantic Working Group on how to regulate the internet. And that's really been the great journey because the traditions are so different. We have to find that point of consensus. I do think there is one to find around transparency. I do think that's one where that's embedded in our language. And listen, I have some sympathy for some of the right-wing arguments that are floating around America. You know, when not a lot of sympathy, but there's a scintilla of, of something very prescient when you already see it from the Trump campaign saying, oh, you know, Google rigged the algorithms against conservatives. I don't think Google do that. But the fact that we don't know, the fact that Google is a black box, and the fact we don't have enough transparency for there to be trust in our society, that is a huge problem. It kind of disables the potential for any kind of deliberative democracy. Just for the end of this conversation, let's take one further step back, because I'm always uh, torn between these two very different ways of thinking about what's going on. On the one hand, it seems that we are genuinely in a new moment, a new age, that all of these developments we're talking about have just changed the fundamental structure of political communication and therefore the fundamental nature of politics in our age. And when we are 100 or 200 years away from now, we will say, you know, the arrival of the internet changed the trajectory of world history. On the other hand, I'm quite alive to the concern of what some theorists have called chronocentricity. So the concern that every generation thinks that something that's going on in their time is absolutely central to world history, is different from anything that came before, that the introduction of a telegram or the telephone or of radio or of television or of cable television and now of Twitter and Facebook will radically reshape the world. And while each of those moments obviously had a real impact, that may slightly exaggerate how special the change technological circumstances of our age really are. On these two sort of poles, where do you fall? How do you think we'll think to ask you a very modest question at the end, how do you think we'll think of the role of the internet and of social media in politics 50 or 100 years from now? Look, without a doubt, everybody wants to feel that they live in kind of uh, important times. And uh, that kind of narcissism is something that's kind of fueled by social media, which is so constructed around narcissism. Look, yeah, sure, it's a great question. But uh, I'm not a technological determinist. But the sort of communications technology we have, whether it's writing, whether it's print, whether it's radio, does have its own logic. And even if things were happening for deeper historical reasons, the shape they take is predicated and is becomes, in a way, subservient to the technology. So let's say we would still have this crisis of the end of history, you know, which is essentially what we're talking about, my explanation for, for post-truth, a, a negative end of history, a kind of like a, uh, the fact that, you know, history ended as a disaster because it, it means that we don't need future-orientated conversations anymore. I think that would have happened without the introduction of, of Twitter and Facebook. But the fact that they're there then kind of gives its own shape and its own tenor and its own and its own logic to this crisis. So it's, it's kind of a dialogue, I suppose, between historical and cultural things and, and technology. And, and maybe we need to look much deeper into that dialogue. That also means, though, that we could shift this if we thought about how to use the technology differently. Uh, I think the technology, whether it's radio or TV or print, it has its own logic. And then we can find the good and bad in that logic.
So what is it that we have uh, to do to shift it? And I have a kind of theory about this, which I want to run past you, and then you can tell me to conclude this conversation why my theory is wrong and what the better theory is. When TV came along, or when radio came along, it took a while for the forces that wanted to help foster democratic deliberative debate to kind of react to this. The first people who took advantage of radio were totalitarian demagogues. The first great star of television, I think, in many ways, is, is Joseph McCarthy. He kind of realizes, wow, you can use TV for, 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 for witch hunts. And it takes a while for something like the BBC to kind of think about, okay, how do we use TV in a different way? And how do we use radio in a different way? And I think that'll happen now with social media. I don't think media as we know it now is up to the task because it's caught in this spiral of actually making the polarization and the fracturing even worse. I think we'll see the emergence, we need to see the emergence of a new kind of civic media actor whose job when it gets up in the morning is to smooth polarization, to build dialogue between different groups, to do a lot of audience analysis the way the bad guys do. Uh, the way the Cambridge Analytica's or the Putin's do, but do it in a transparent way and find the kind of the places and uh, the stories and the topics that can build dialogue between different groups, which is kind of using the same technology and using the same kind of logic that the malign forces do, but they do audience analysis and then ferment polarization, while we could do the same audience analysis and use it for completely different aims. Again, look, I'm a practical person. At the end of the day, I think that's what needs to happen. And the question is, how is it funded and who's going to do it? What are some of the things that listeners to this podcast can do to change their own habits of media consumption, to change what they share on social media, how they make sure that they don't unwittingly become part of propaganda, to somehow make their own contribution to us um, getting a hold of, of a steep challenge? So that's a fantastic question. And I'm not sure it's like that. I'm not, I'm not sure change happens because like an individual tries to do something better. These are structural issues. So let's at least reach consensus on the kind of regulatory change we want. Because I think that's something that the Trump supporters are sort of saying in their own way. That's what us, whatever, what are we kind of Eastern European liberals are saying. It's kind of how I probably define my, my worldview. I'm kind of 1968 Czech liberal. And uh, I think that's something we can find consensus on. You know, I think that's one thing where we can all come together and agree, look, transparency is good. We should be able to understand the way the internet shapes our information environment. That's just, the, that's a right. Let's start with that because that's a structural change that if there's enough bottom-up push, I think it can happen. So let's get that right. I don't think massive change will happen just because one person does something slightly differently. I logged off Facebook, but I've just become a Twitter addict. So I think, <laughs> I don't think, well, you know, that one little bit of behavioral change helped me very much. I do want to end this podcast with two recommendations for individual change, which are effective in part because I think they'll make your life happier. And the first is delete the Twitter app off your phone. Only make it a deliberate thing that you go to when you actually want to understand some crisis that's unfolding in the world or some particular piece of content you want to share. Don't start to live online. And the second thing in my mind is that a lot of the terrible influence of Twitter specifically, but also of Facebook, is not that there's people shouting at each other online. It's a relatively small percentage of a population that's obsessed with these things. Let them go there and shout at each other. It is when leaders of institutions in society, leaders of newspapers and magazines and universities and corporations and NGOs and schools, start to think that the very small and unrepresentative number of people on Facebook and Twitter, on social media, expressing their opinions on particular issues actually are representative of 
the population. I think once we recognize that even for anybody can post on Twitter, Twitter is not the general public, a lot of its pernicious influence might start to subside a little bit. So that's my optimistic take. I don't know whether you agree with it or not, Peter, or whether you have any other wise parting words as we come to a close on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, that's probably very true about Twitter. But I'd really like us to think about sort of the potential good that technology can do. I mean, we've gone through a tech clash, which I think is completely justified. But one of the most inspiring meetings I had in my book was with uh, Alberto Scorcia, who's a kind of, he's an activist and a pro-democracy activist, a protest leader, but very digitally focused in Mexico. And he sees the world in data. And he was really excited by a way he'd find to like use Google to work out the kind of the revolutionary desires of society that lie beneath the surface. So just as Google famously uh, managed to predict and anticipate and stop a flu epidemic by seeing the searches that people were doing in various bits of the world and showing how those searches related to, you know, an upcoming flu epidemic and then managed to nip it in the bud. He does that with social change. So by looking at what people are searching for on Google in Mexico and different regions and relating that to current events, he could see kind of desires bubbling up in society. And if he saw data as a way of communicating with kind of the true desires for social change in society that were kind of being halted by, you know, the false reality of regime-manipulated media. Now, since that romantic time, things have got harder because regimes got much better at kind of like stepping in and getting in the way of us being able to understand ourselves through data. But I think that is still there and we have to find ways of unlocking that latent possibility. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com that's goodfightpod at gmail.com this recording carries a creative commons 4.0 international license thanks to silent partner for their song chess pieces Music